0: Really glad that you're with us today. If you're joining us through the virtual broadcast, welcome. If you're new here, welcome. Really glad that you chose to make this part of your Sunday. I wanna remind you that the new E2E books are out in the atrium. Um, Today, book five begins. There's no cost to these, they're free. But if you're part of the E2E study, you're gonna definitely want these as we're working through it. Uh, We started, I was told almost two years ago, I can't believe it's that long, but we started with the book of Genesis. And in a little bit, we're gonna be in the New Testament. Um, That'll be like two years from now. And (laughs) (laughs) this morning we're in Joshua, Joshua chapter two, but be sure and pick up one of these in the atrium on your way out this morning. It'll help you, it'll be uh, very useful to your studies and it'll show you where we're going, where we're moving towards next. I'd love to pray with you about what we're about to step into. I just wanna remind you, if you perhaps came in a little late this morning, Um, that there's a lot of ministry starting up this week. Women's ministry starts on Tuesday. Greenhouse has an event after service today. Student ministry begins tonight at 1340, and men's ministry on Wednesday evening um, with burritos, guys, so you can't miss that, right? Okay, so knowing all that information that's all behind us, we're ready to study God's Word, right? You don't sound convinced. We're ready to study God's Word, right? Okay, I'm glad for the enthusiasm. Let's pray together and ask that God would be our teacher. Father, there is so much potential in our humanness that we could be greatly offended by the things that we're about to look at. But you speak truth and you speak your truth in love. And so we would ask that you help us to process it that way. And that you would allow us, even when it hurts, to adapt our lives to your purposes and to be conformed to your will. Regardless of what culture says, God, we ask that you would guide us to act like people who belong to you. And as we look at this passage, Father, I pray that you would allow us to, in turn, translate these things into our lives, that we would represent your kingdom well. That we would represent you in grace and mercy and in love, but also with conviction that you stand for truth, and we stand with you. So we pray that you would guide us in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. If I tick you off this morning, welcome to New Hope. (laughs) Nobody walked out on me in the first service, but just know that what we're about to look at is fairly intense, and it, it starts off. Intense In this way, one of the frequent questions that comes my way is this, what does God do with individuals who die without never hearing about Jesus? Typically, it's couched in some qualifications like, okay, what does God do with a child who dies really, really young before they can even process it? What about somebody who's mentally impaired, who has no ability to process it? What about the guy who died in Russia in 31 A.D.? Jesus dies on the cross. Two days later, this guy dies, and he never had a chance to hear about Jesus. What does God do with individuals like that? First and foremost, and I hope you agree with what I'm about to say by echoing an amen. First and foremost, God is a righteous God. And because He's righteous, He cannot act unrighteously. So the answer is always the same, no matter the question in regard to those issues. God is not 90% righteous. He is 100% righteous, therefore He can only judge righteously, and His decisions are rooted in nothing but pure righteousness, therefore He's way different than you and I because we're flawed, we fail, we judge unrighteously. But God can only sit on His white throne and make righteous judgments regarding such huge issues. Every judgment He makes is absolutely perfect. So in regard to the what about scenarios, here's where I land and what I understand from Scripture. Each and every single person will stand before God one day. And each and every person will be held accountable for what they did with what they know at the level of knowledge that they had. So you this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are one who truly believes and you say, I believe that Jesus is my only hope, Scripture affirms for you that you will be in heaven. God has you. Scripture says this in Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So for the church, there is this issue. How do I define belief? What does that actually look like? How do I see it in my own life? And how do you actually measure that? The truest indicator of legitimate faith in your life Is how you're living? Is there fruit being produced from your life? You can actually measure the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. Did you know that? You can actually measure the way that God's working in your life in this way. Are you living like you belong to Jesus? Or are you living like every other person on the street who has zero interest in the things of God? Can you be identified as one who says, I belong to Him? A simple way of saying it is this. Does your belief match your walk because that's what God is watching for. The best way to illustrate what I just posed to you is an Old Testament example of what belief actually looks like. What does it actually look like for someone to believe in God? And you're going to see three levels of belief. So I'm going to invite you to go to Joshua chapter 1 and chapter 2. We'll be in Joshua 1 for just a moment, and then Joshua 2, we're going to look at a story If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's fine, you see the verses on the screen, but maybe you have an electronic copy or or a hard copy with you, or there's Bibles in the seats in front of you and they are little racks, you follow along that way if you'd like, but just look up on the screen and and we'll get to Joshua 1 in just a moment. Here's what's going on. In Joshua chapter 1, God is compelling Joshua Ben-Nun, Joshua son, son of Nun, He's compelling him to believe at a level many of us will never face. And God's calling him to a very high standard of belief. And I don't mean believing that he exists, but rather Scripture says very specifically if you believe at that level, you've got a very weak amount of faith. So I don't mean that he, he needs to believe that God is. Hear me out on this. James writes that even the demons believe and they shudder. Look at me on the screen. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. That's 101 level. That's the most basic belief. And of course they shudder because demons are fallen angels and they've been in heaven and they've been in the presence of God and they know what it is to see a holy and righteous God and Scripture says they're terrified, the, the word that's actually used is in your notes this morning. I wanted you to see this one. It's up on the screen. This word frizzo, it's one of those rare words that actually has a, a meaning to it that matches the way you pronounce it. It's like, oh, I'm freaking out here. So frizzo's got that meaning to it. They're shuddering because of what they're going to face when they stand before God. James chapter 2 is actually a discussion of what legitimate faith looks like. And he makes a really vivid point. This is James' argument. If you only have the faith of demons, it's useless. What good is that? Even though they know about God, they tremble about God, they know it to be true, it's useless to them. So James' argument is this. People who say they believe in God, that they believe that there is a God, and show no evidence of faith in their life whatsoever, meaning they have no fruit, that person has a level of belief similar to the demons. That's really, really, really basic. Because Paul argues in Romans chapter 1, everybody knows in their heart. They know that God exists. And those who deny it, they admit it at 2 in the morning when they're freaking out and when they're afraid. So James writes this, It's foolish to think that you can possibly have a legitimate faith without it showing up in your daily actions. It's going to leak out of you. Well, that's one level, but I wanted to show you two levels. There's a much more advanced level, and let's see how Joshua 1 and 2 illustrate legitimate faith for us. There's these two other levels, and here comes the highest level of faith. Watch. Verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, meaning the Jordan River, you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses, from the wilderness of this Lebanon, check this, all the way to the north country, up by Assyria, all the way up north, And then he goes on to say, from this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the Euphrates, meaning all the way back towards Babylon, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, meaning the Mediterranean Sea, will be your territory. That's an amazing amount of geography, just as an aside. Israel never accomplished that which God committed to them. They got that little sliver of land because they didn't trust God enough to expand their territory. They could have had territory, God said, all the way to Babylon, which would have made them the kings of the oil empire of the world, but they failed to take God at His word. That's just an aside. That God is speaking directly to Joshua here, is absolutely enormous, because to this point, he's only been speaking to Moses. And here comes verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give to them. And if you go on to read Joshua 1, what's going on there is three times. God compels Joshua to believe him. I am for you, Joshua. Believe me that I am going to be with you. And I don't mean believe that God exists. This is a much larger level of belief in God. We're speaking here of believing God for salvation, meaning this, God's salvation of deliverance, of rescue, of intervention, of provision. St. Joshua, I will be all those things to you. Believe me, not only that I am but that I can do and I will do what I say I will do. That's what God wants Joshua to believe. And so he's compelling him to be courageous because of this truth. The previous generation did not believe. They believed that God is. They saw the pillar of fire. They were at Mount Sinai. They saw the Red Sea split open. So they believe that God exists But they don't believe that God can do what He says He's going to do or that He will do what He says He will do. And so as a result, they died without seeing the Promised Land. Check this. Even though they saw the same things that Joshua saw. They saw the Red Sea. They saw what God did to Egypt. They saw Mount Sinai. They saw the manna. They saw the pillar of fire. They saw the earth shake. Yet Joshua remains, and that whole previous generation is gone, even though they saw what Joshua saw. So they believed in God's existence, but did not believe to the degree that they would trust God to do exactly what God said He would do. In other words, they rejected His capacity to bring them safely to the Promised Land. God said, trust me. And they would not, and so they turned their back on God. So in chapter one of Joshua, God is saying to Joshua, trust me, Joshua, I've got this. I am more than able, I am more than capable. And why is God taking him to graduate level faith? It's necessary because he's just been called to conquer a land that's occupied by a very fierce, a very powerful, a very satanic, ungodly society. So Joshua, in this section, is being pushed to graduate-level faith, and God expects more of Joshua because he has lots of information. He knows. He's got the experience with God, so he's got knowledge and he's got experience. So that's the very lowest level, the demonic faith, and the very highest level, graduate level faith. But what if I want to see someone who's more like me? What if I want to see someone who's more normal, not a Joshua type? Someone who hasn't been to seminary and sat at the feet of Professor Moses, because that's who Joshua is. What about a normal person? What does God actually expect of that one when it comes to faith? Well, that comes to Joshua chapter 2. And in Joshua chapter 2, they're about to move from the east side of the Jordan River to the west side of the Jordan River and enter into the Promised Land. But first, they've got to get past the city of Jericho. And Jericho is a strategic city. So as they head west and cross the river that's going to allow them to go right through the middle of the land, splitting the land between north and south and their military strength will be able to conquer the land if they get past Jericho. So Joshua's got a huge challenge in front of him and he's a good military leader. Good military generals want to know things about their enemy before they go in and take on the battle. And so that's exactly what Joshua is asking them to do. So we start with verse 1 this way. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two spies, men as spies, secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So picture it this way. Let's say that you and I are camped as part of this nation of Israel on the east side of the Jordan River, and Newton Road out there to the west is the Jordan River. And the old drive-in location across the street from Newton Road, that's the Promised Land. Okay? Get that picture in your head. So they're on one side, they've got to cross the river, they've got to go to the other side, and they've got to go through this massive military city. But right now, they're camped at the foot of the Moabite Mountains on the east side. This is what one historian wrote in the 1800s about this region where they're camped. He had been to Israel and visited this location. This is what he wrote about it. I found this to be a wide plain carpeted with wild flowers, blooming in luxuriant beauty. Watered by many rivulets and natural springs and covered by acacia trees, filled with birds of the brightest plumage by the banks of streams. Sounds beautiful. Joshua, can't we just stay here? This looks really good to us. This is a gorgeous area. But he knows where God wants them to be. And so he sends out these spies, and they cross the Jordan River. And as they approach Jericho, the sun is beginning to set. Very strategic, they planned it for the end of the day so they'll be less visible to people. And the sun's rays are shining on this brilliant limestone that surrounds Jericho and it begins to give a glow across the valley, acts like an amphitheater around the city. They know to expect that because they've heard reports from other people, it's a beautiful region, but what is completely unexpected to them is as they walk through the gates, and enter into the marketplace and into the courtyards, which is normally bustling with people, there's this eerie silence that's present within the streets of Jericho. A a terror has fallen over these people because they hear about something that's coming their direction. And the late day arrival of these two suspicious strangers coming into their region, definitely catches their attention, especially as the streets are more empty than normal. So we find the rest of this verse saying, so they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Because of course that's where you go when you go to a new city is to a prostitute's house, right? (laughs) What? Why are they doing that? Joshua sends out the spies. They head directly to Jericho and they decide to stay with a prostitute. There's reasoning behind their logic, the word that's actually used there, lodging. Now, the targum, the Jewish targum is ancient writings, and Josephus, who is a first-century writer, and many of the rabbis look at the description that's used there and say, well, she wasn't actually a prostitute. She was an innkeeper. Nope. The New Testament says she was actually a prostitute. Here's the word that's actually used, Zana It's in your notes this morning. One who commits fornication... Times continually, times greatly, to play the harlot or be the whore. Pulling no punches whatsoever, it's describing exactly who she is. So because of her occupation, visitors are coming and going out of her residence, whether or not it's an inn that makes you feel better to call it that than call it that. But this is a prostitute's house. So Joshua's men are strictly there to gather information, even though other people are coming and going, they're not there for her professional services, if you will. I know that to be true because of some of the things that are written. Specifically, the Hebrew language says they went there to lodge, which is the word to sleep, not sleep with her, but to sleep or take advantage of her in, although they want the population of Jericho to think that's the reason they're there. They don't want anybody to notice anything differently, so they just want to be part of the guys that are going in and out of this inn. Well Rahab's Inn is the place where men can normally stay undetected. And her home also brought with it this easy escape window on the back side of the house, and it's, it's located on the exterior wall of the city. Maybe you've never thought about it before, but how did she just happen to have rope in her house? Well, other guys have obviously used the rope before too. They need to get out of that house pretty quickly. We'll come back to that in a minute. So this is an espionage mission, and it's focused primarily on Jericho. These guys are only supposed to be gone a little bit of time, not like the 40 days that the 12 spies went out. This is supposed to be a short session. Go in, check it out, come back, bring us a report. It's going to turn into a three-day trip. Now, ancient Jericho is about a landmass, according to archaeologists, of about 10 acres. And according to what archaeologists have uncovered there, they they figured probably 2,000 residents live inside the city limits. It's kind of a crammed area, but that's how many fit into that. And they had walls, double walls that went around the city. Archaeologists have uncovered two sets of walls. We'll come back to that in a minute, too, which was normal, about a 15-foot separation between the two walls. So very likely, this house was chosen for its location for its reputation and specifically because questions don't tend to get asked in a prostitute's house. They don't really talk about other things other than what they're there for. However, these young men are not very good spies and they get caught. They get caught pretty quickly. Matter of fact, they're just walking through the city and people call them out and they're quickly spotted and they're identified as Hebrews and it's reported. Verse 2, it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land Now this type of a king that's being identified here is first and foremost the safety guard of the region. His responsibility is not like what you think of when you think of a King Charles, for instance, not somebody in royal regal splendor, but this is more like a regional governor. So the cities at this time were fairly large, but they were not part of a bigger government, they were city-states. And each of the larger cities had their own, what you would call, king. More like a governor, of a region who is responsible for keeping law and order and for keeping the safety of the people. Well, the king's soldiers are sent directly to Rahab, and they order her to bring the men out who enter her house, and they expect Rahab's going to do her patriotic duty. You're going to turn the men over, they're spies, and we're going to execute them. They've come here for nefarious purposes. And right out of the gate, you're only two verses into the story, and a really crucial tone is set. Rahab has to make a choice. What does she believe? Her belief is going to be measured in her actions. It's here that we actually see that Rahab has already put her faith in Yahweh. Now, you might think that's a bit of a leap for me to say that, but reason this through with me. Before the spies ever arrive in Jericho, you can tell by her actions what she's decided. Because when the spies come to her home, her very first action is to hide them before the king ever demands that she turn them over to him. This is a really big deal, church because this is a huge step of belief. Hiding the spies deceives the king, and it's turning her back on her own people. She's siding against the people who live within her city, and it's an act of treason. Ancient codes are very specific about how nations would treat prostitutes if they took action against the king. I don't know if you're familiar with the Code of Hammurabi, but let me take your attention to that for just a moment, this statement. You'll see it in your notes also, and then I'll explain this to you. From 1750 B.C. with the Code of Hammurabi, it says, If felons are banded together in a prostitute or innkeeper's house, they called them ale wives. in a prostitute or innkeeper's house, and she has not hailed them to the palace, that alewife wife shall be put to death. There's no negotiating. There's no if ands, or buts about it. A very clear code. Well, she's in Canaanite territory, and the Canaanites did what the Assyrians did, what the Babylonians did, what the Hittites did. The code of Hammurabi that was established by the Babylonian Empire by a Babylonian king in the 1700s BC became a law that was honored by people throughout the entire savant district, except for the Israelites. But there's codes that you can find, the code of Hammurabi, that are very similar to the things that God commanded people to do. She knows the codes like everybody else, and by all means, she does not want her house searched. Collaborate with spies, you're going to be put to death. Watch, verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said... Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. I do not want to get into and get off track of by trying to address the issue of her lie right now. We could spend an entire hour just on that and how God used His perfect purposes and worked through a woman's lie in this situation that that would take us down a whole nother trail. If you want to talk about it after the service, I'd be glad to do that with you. We can certainly do that. Here's the bigger issue. She's just stepped it up because she's increasing the ploy by saying, if you guys don't hurry up, if the guards' kings don't really, the king's guards don't really get after these guys, they're going to escape. You better go. And to the soldiers who are standing there, her excuse sounds really credible. She's frank and she's forthright. They were in my house, but they're not now. Well, that's true because they're up on the roof of the house. But that's only a half-truth. But that's not her biggest lie. She said, I don't, I don't know where they're at. Now homes are very flat-roofed at this period of time in that region. Many of them still are today. And the flat-roofed homes were used for multiple purposes. Not only because they don't have much rain did it become a good place for storage, but specifically for drying out crops. And so they would take advantage of the Mediterranean sunlight and and put stacks of flax or wheat or barley, things that they wanted to dry out. They would stack it on the roof of the house and that bright sun would bake it and dry it out. But something is remarkable about the flax here. Watch with me in verse 6. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in stalks of flax, which she had just laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate." So it's very safe to put these guys in the flax stalks, because flax was imported from Egypt. It wasn't grown locally. And when it was brought in, they brought in both young flax and old flax. And young flax was used for clothing. And they would blend it together with the cotton and it would make it more pliable and softer to its appearance, but they had to work with it. And then old flax would be used to make rope. It was very tough and stiff. But in either case, they had to soak it. And they would soak it in water for a long period of time to the point that the water became intentionally stagnant because of the chemical reaction within the water, the stagnation process would cause the fibers in the flax to break down and then they could pull the fibers apart and they could begin working with it. However, the water became putrid, and when they would take the flax out and stack it on the roof, it's this rotting, stinking, putrid mess that we're told that she stuck the spies underneath to hide them, because nobody's gonna look for them under that mess. And so while these guys are inhaling putrid fumes on the roof because they're buried in the flax, The king is forming a posse, and he's putting his posse together so they can go out in hot pursuit, which becomes both funny and factual, and it reinforces in our mind this image of Jericho being this heavily guarded city, because they're in fear right now. There's a military encampment nearby, and they know that the Israelites are not far away. So the soldiers immediately take off, and they begin searching every street east of the city we get this detail that they shut and lock the gates behind them. Fear has a strange stranglehold on all these people. And they're worried that a surprise attack is going to come during the night. Well, the soldiers no sooner, sooner leave than she bolts for the roof of her house and we find what comes next? And now catch the context of this. She's just stood at the door of her house and has taken a stand I know that I want to belong to God. This is what she's thinking internally. I know that I want to belong to Him. And she embraces Yahweh as God in heaven and over the earth, and she's confessing her belief, her statement in both a faith statement and in her action. Go with me to that next verse. Read this in context, church. This is a Gentile saying this. Verse eight. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. How she even knew that? The, the word is Yahweh. She uses God's name there. I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Just kind of a, a slight speculation on my part. I, I told you i always let you know when I'm speculating. Just a speculation on my part. It must have been widely known in the region, especially in the city gates of Jericho, that Israel is only camped six miles away, and that they're on the opposite side of the Jordan. Because if you're in DeWitt, and two million people show up down in Mason, you think you're going to know about it? People riding on horseback, people tending to their herds. Just people doing what they do in daily life. They're certainly going to see these people and come back and say, did you see what's going on? Do you know how many people are down there? That's just speculation. I think it's safe. But beyond my speculation, archaeology actually reveals to us that these guys had inside information in Jericho. And how they had it is through published reports. Judging from pottery that's been made available, through archaeology and from the Armana letters, which were written around this same period of time. The Armana letters are like a news publication of the day. Let me show you an excerpt from an archaeological report. This is from the Armstrong Institute of Archaeology. Many of these tablets are inscribed with text written by several different regional Canaanite rulers expressing consternation and even terror at the fact that all the lands were being overrun by a mysterious people they called the Habru, whom they referred to as the Hebrews." So it's being published in the papers. And the Canaanites in Jericho, Rahab included, certainly are aware of what the newspaper is reporting to all the people of this region. And Rahab is dialed into her culture because she's a prostitute. She sees men every day. She certainly knows who's coming and going. And she has learned that the Amorites have been wiped out and they couldn't even fight because they ran away from the Israelites in fear because they were so terrified of them. So it's very clear to us as she is very convicted of who God is before the spies ever even speak to her, and her language becomes that of a believer. Watch the language, Yahweh has given you the land, verse 11, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh, the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Can I tell you that in circumstances like she's in, you don't say things like that unless you know that you know that you know. Her life is at risk. She's just made a declarative statement. He's God. He's the only one. Now, on one level, Rahab is confirming exactly the fulfillment of one of the Exodus promises. One of the things that God said to Moses is, when I send my terror ahead of you, it's going to scare the bejeebers out of people, Moses. Well, that's just according to Kring. Let me show you the way God said it. Verse 27, Exodus 23, I will send my terror out ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you, meaning you're only going to see their backside because they're going to be running away from you. This is exactly what happened throughout the Old Testament. I'm sure that these two young men sat in her house with fascination as she's speaking about the Red Sea, and she recounts the way that God has shown Himself powerful in their midst. And then she begins citing examples like, wow, what you guys did to the Amorites, to King Og, that's just amazing to us. But she caused our hearts to melt because we're so fearful. This, let's, let's just zoom out to our culture and our time. This type of knowledge of the activities of God, this type of knowledge always calls forth in the human mind an energy, an energy that surfaces in one of two forms. In that energy, some are driven away from God and others are drawn to Him, and you can track it in the story. In the minds of many of the Canaanites on the street, the people who are living day in and day out life, they hear these news reports, and there's an energy of despair. There's an energy of terror that's driving them crazy, and it results in them resisting God. It's a great mystery because the exact same knowledge, the exact same information awakens in Rahab. A a far different reaction because in her heart something extraordinary has happened. The same has happened to you when you confess faith in Jesus Christ. There's an alignment of your soul with God and the purposes of God. This is where she's at. She's in a Canaanite society which is highly polytheistic, meaning from little girl age, toddler age, she's been raised in a polytheistic world thinking there's many gods and you bow down before stone sculptures and that's just what you do. You you worship the gods. She knows her culture super well. She's a prostitute. Yet without reservation, she's declaring there's one true God and he rules over everything and he's Yahweh. So out of the dozens and dozens and dozens of polytheistic gods, she's saying, there's only one who's worthy of worship. And this knowledge results in her making a confession of faith. And as far as I can find it, if you can see differently, tell me. I think it's the first Gentile confession in the entire Old Testament. A prostitute in a Canaanite village who's had no exposure to the things of God. And she comes to a realization that there's there's only one. So in turn, her knowledge, her understanding of this causes her to ask for a rescue. And make no mistake, when she's asking for this, she is risking her life by identifying herself with God's people. Verse 12, now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household. And give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them. This is a huge group of people. And deliver our lives from death. So Rahab's come to an amazing conclusion. She not only believes there's a God, she believes in that God. She believes he's the only true God to worship, and she's come to a conclusion She believes there's mercy found to that God. Like, you guys, you follow that God. You could rescue me. I need mercy. I know mercy is available. And because mercy in her mind is available, it motivates her to ask for it. So the guys agree. They agree on the condition that she doesn't tell anybody about their mission. Verse 14, so the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land, that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you." Way different than our culture today, oath-taking is a very serious issue in ancient times. We make promises and break them all the time. When they made promises, when they made oaths, it was at the cost of their life. They did not break oaths. So this is a really big deal, what she's asking them to enter into. And let's add to it, what about the fact that God said, Israel, you are expressly forbidden from making any covenants whatsoever with the Canaanite people? What do you do with that? Well, Rahab's situation is far, far different, and here's the difference. The difference is her confession that she's just aligned herself with God. they're, They're dealing with a believer here. So they're willing to enter into an agreement with her. Verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. It must have been a really crowded city for Rahab's house to be built into the wall. And as I mentioned earlier, it appears that it was a a double wall. The phrase that's actually used in Hebrew there is plural, double walls. She lives on the walls, which brings to mind this defensive strategy that ancient cities put together at this time. And archaeological digs have revealed that Jericho had two walls called casement walls. So between these casement walls, interestingly, they would build ramparts connecting the walls. And they actually became chambers because there was 15 feet in between and people began putting their dwellings in the connecting parts. They would put windows into the wall and this is exactly where Rahab lives and her window is so high, she has to let the spies down by a rope. And have you ever asked yourself, what is she doing with a rope? Because she's a prostitute. And she has to let people out who don't want to be found. So it's obviously not the first time this has been used. Keep going. Verse 17, the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, when you have made, which you have made us swear unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. "'And gather to yourself into the house "'your father and your mother and your brothers "'and all your father's household. "'It shall come about that anyone "'who goes out of the doors of your house "'into the street, his blood shall be on his own head "'and we shall be free. "'But anyone who is with you in the house, "'his blood shall be on our head "'if a hand is laid on him. "'But if you tell this business of ours, "'then we shall be free from the oath "'which you have made us swear.' "'She said, "'According to your words, so be it.' "'So she sent them away.' And they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So this red cord is going to be really visible in the day of battle. And when they negotiate this deal, they're thinking there's going to be hand-to-hand fighting. They have no idea what God has in store for Jericho. They think it's going to be ugly, and it's going to be up front and in your face. So they're making this deal so that they can protect her. So when the men descend by the rope out of her window, they're obviously outside the wall of the city, and they head west towards some nearby caves, and only a local would know that. Only someone who lives in Jericho would know that if you go west towards the mountains, you're going to find it's honeycombed with caves. You can hide there, and you'll be safe, and maybe after three days they'll stop looking for you, and then you can make your way back, and they're going to do that very thing, and they're going to go find Joshua. So following Rahab's advice, they literally head for the hills, and they disappear into the night. Verse 22, they departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but they had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. Pause there for just a moment. It kind of brought a smile to my face when I was thinking this week about them encountering Joshua the first time. So they walk up to Joshua and they're, they're telling him everything that happened. So Joshua says, so how did it go? And they say, well, we spent some time with a prostitute. Would that not get your attention? Not as much as the very next thing. Verse 24, they said to Joshua, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. End of story. Which allows us to be left with a couple questions, and let me address one of the questions that comes out of this. Could your God prevent the discovery of the spies in the first place. This is participatory. Yeah, Yeah. certainly, right? Absolutely. God could have prevented that, which tells us that God allowed that. God allows things to come in our life, which make no sense to us, because I'm thinking when they're hiding under the flax and they're covered with that putrid smell, they're thinking, what in the world did we get into? Why couldn't you hide us better, God? Because that's where our minds go humanly. But we're seeing here that God allowed it because we understand that God allows things into our life because that same God also causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So there must be really good purpose in this Rahab encounter. Here's the good purpose. There's a chosen one of God inside the city of Jericho, one who is defiled both in her mind and in her body. And she's not just a polytheist. She's a Gentile, she's a Canaanite, and she's notorious as a wicked, reckless whore, and she's committed the vilest of sins. Yeah, church, check this out. God has His sight set on her. You think God isn't interested in your life? God has His sight set on her just like the woman at the well that Jesus encountered. Many of God's people have a wicked past. You remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church? He put together a laundry list of what the past life looked like of all those church people. Let me show you this. 1 Corinthians 6.10. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But man, do I love verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Paul says, this is who you used to be. You're not that anymore. Look at who you are in Jesus. So why let the spies get discovered? Because inside Jericho is someone whom the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world. Rahab was by nature cut off from the children of Abraham. But God, who is rich in mercy, you know the passage, church, but God, who is rich in mercy, what He did is He brought her into the fold, He brought her into the kingdom, and she became a forerunner of the future calling of the Gentiles, which is a match for what Paul wrote in Romans 5, because where sin abounded, say it with me, church, grace did much more, much more abound. Dr. Pink um, wrote this quote I'm about to show you, just a beautiful description of Rahab's story. Look with me at this. Predestined to be delivered from the miry pit and washed whiter than snow by the precious blood of Christ and given a place in his own family, it is in such, just such cases as hers that the unmerited favor of God shines forth the more resplendently. There was nothing whatever in that poor fallen woman to commend her to God's favorable regard. But where sin had abounded, grace did much more. (laughs) Amazing grace is all over the Old Testament. You sang it here this morning. We think of it as a relatively new song because it was written in the last couple hundred years. They had a dial in on it way, 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 way back in the ancient days. The visit of the men to her home simply brought the opportunity for this public manifestation of faith. Could God have taken Jericho without even sending the spies in? Of course he could have, absolutely. So, ask yourself this question. Would God go to all this trouble and allow all these circumstances to play out just to save a prostitute? Yep. Because that's what He does. Our God is full of grace, full of mercy. He's 100% righteous, and He expects people to believe in Him, and His actions should be reflected in our life, that our actions would reflect that we actually belong to Him. This is the astounding thing to me, church. The Holy Spirit brought salvation to this woman entirely apart from what we think of as normal. There's no Shabbat services going on down in Jericho streets. There's no hymns being sung. There's no prophets walking through the streets announcing God. There's no sacrificial system. There's no priest. She's never seen a pillar of fire. She's never seen manna. Yet God, who is rich in mercy, brings her into the kingdom, not in the normal way that you would think of. And I know that to be true because the Scriptures affirm it in multiple places. Two verses to wrap this up, Hebrews eleven thirty-one. By faith, Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Did you know that if you read the book of Hebrews and you go to chapter 11, that only two women are mentioned personally by name in that great, what we call the hall of faith chapter? Sarah's wife, Sarah, Abraham's wife and Rahab the prostitute. Out of the entire Old Testament, two women, Rahab and Sarah. I I think the people of God really held her in high esteem. So what became of Rahab? Well, first, the Bible identifies this woman as a woman of incredibly great courage. Think about it. She had to tell all of her relatives that there was gonna be a rescue and that she had aligned herself with the people of God. And she had to trust that none of those people would rat her out, and they apparently all did believe her. So this woman became the wife of Solomon, not Solomon the son of David, but Solomon, one who is a prince in Israel of the tribe of Judah. She is the grandmother of King David, which means she is the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ your Lord. In the line in the tribe of Judah, Jesus descends from this prostitute. I love that God is not embarrassed to have a former prostitute in the family tree of Jesus. How about you? So let's wrap it up with James' statement. This is where we started. James chapter 2. But someone may say, well, say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Rahab acted on the little that she knew, and that's what God expects of anyone. What did you do with the information that you had? Her knowledge of God was really skimpy but she acted on what she knew and that was enough. So just like a flag flying on your house right now, maybe on your apartment, that red cord hanging out her window, it allowed her to say in a very public way, I'm identifying, I'm I'm part of this. I wanna be part of the kingdom of God. Just like the blood over the doorpost back in Egypt, she's got this red hanging out her window saying, I belong to God. Rescue me. Biblical faith is believing what God has revealed, and what you believe about God determines exactly what you do. Everyone is going to be held accountable for what they did with what they know. Last thought. If you're new to church this morning, and and you're concluding that, well, if, if Rahab can get in, I guess I can get in too, on one level, you're absolutely correct. From the thief on the cross hanging next to Jesus, to a prostitute in ancient Jericho, everyone can get into heaven if they believe, because Scripture says, Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The question is whether or not that belief is legitimate, and whether or not it's legitimate is actually demonstrated by the fruit in your life. Responding to what God has revealed, and I told you at the very beginning, the truest measure, the truest indicator of whether or not belief is legit in your life is how are you living. Cannot disobey the very things that Jesus called you to do and expect that if He called you to obey Him, you can just turn your back on Him. If you believe, you're gonna follow Him, but on another level entirely. If you conclude by looking at this prostitute that because you live a more moral life than a prostitute, you're you're better in your neighborhood, you're a better parent, you manage your money better than her, If if you're thinking that way, you're thinking completely wrong. That thinking will land you in hell. Works won't save you. Being a good person won't save you. It won't get you into heaven. You are saved, the Bible says, by one way and one way alone, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Scripture declares, not of yourself, it's not of our own works, lest any one of us would boast. You good with that? If not, come talk to me after the church service and I'll be happy to have a dialogue with you. I'll be here in the front if we haven't met yet either. I would love to talk to you and just introduce myself to you. Let's pray together, and we'll go out the door. Father, I thank you so much for every single soul who's been impacted by what you had recorded in Joshua chapter 2 this morning, and perhaps some will listen tonight and later on this week. For those of us who are present physically here now, God, and for those who are on the broadcast right now, I pray that you would cause us to respond to you in humility that each of us would examine our lives and ask ourselves honestly whether or not we're really living out what you called us to live out. We, we want to be known as those who have legitimate faith to so help us to measure our walk and measure it, it honestly. I pray, Father, that there is fruit and that there's so much fruit that this church becomes incredibly noticeable to the community. Continue to do your work through us. Put your blessing upon the efforts. And we here, Father, today and those who are on the broadcast as your representatives as we take on this week, use us in powerful ways to represent your kingdom that the name of Jesus would be advanced. We would be proud to be part of that. We ask for that in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.